So the reading is from Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. Before he uh, met Jesus, Paul had thought that he had life completely nailed. The Apostle Paul thought that he had nailed life. He was a person of power and of influence. But once he met Jesus... He realized that everything that he had thought was really important, everything in his life that he placed value on, actually was nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Before he met Jesus, in his eyes and the eyes of others, he had every reason to be confident that he would be one of God's A-listers. Uh, forget the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, forget Nicky Gumbel who wrote the Alpha Course, uh, forget Tim Hughes or some other great worship leader, forget even the Reverend Canon Dave Richards. Paul had stacked up so many uh, religious credits that he saw himself as number one in God's, book, God's good books. And so in this passage uh, from Philippians 3, Paul begins to explain uh, the reasoning behind his spiritual accounting system, if you like. If you look at verse four and following, it'll be on the screen as well. So firstly, he says, I've be, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Like all good Jewish men, he carried the sign of belonging to God, being one of God's chosen ones. He sees that as credit for himself. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, he says, one of the most faithful tribes in the Old Testament. He is a pure Israelite, credit for him. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he comes from good religious stock, another credit for him. And he's a Pharisee. Luke says in Acts 26 verse 5, he says that the Pharisees were the strictest party of the religion. They were obsessive and legalistic about following the letter of the law. And Paul was a Pharisee. He was a top scholar. He had a perfect copybook when it came to obeying the rules. Another credit for him. 
And as for zeal, as for passion, he was at the forefront of persecuting the church, pursuing and bringing to trial those people who declared Jesus Christ as Lord. A whole load extra brownie points for him. If righteousness, being right with God, was based on the law, if following the rules made you right with God, Paul says, look at all these credits I've stacked up. I was faultless. I thought I had it nailed. But that was until he met Jesus. And then this accounting system that he has goes into self-destruct because he realizes this. He realizes that all that is worth nothing because Christ is enough. When he adds up all those achievements, all those things that gave him power in his community, all those things that gave him value and worth, all those things that he thought made him like a spiritual A-lister, he realizes that actually they add up to zero. Because as he declares this in verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All these things circumcision and being a pure Jew and keeping the letter of the law, all these things that made me acceptable and worthy, gave me position and power, all those things that I thought made me right with God, he says, I now consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he goes further in verse 8 when he says this, I consider all these things that I thought were important these things that I thought had brought me favor and power, I consider them garbage. And the word actually means a load of crap, to be honest. It's pretty strong words. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I'm really challenged by this. Do I consider all those things in my life uh, that make me seem important? Uh, in the world's eyes, those things that maybe uh, give me position or power or influence, those things uh, that give me worth, do I consider them a load of rubbish compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord? If I'm honest, a good amount of the time, the answer is no. I wonder if that's the same in your life. We get so concerned about what others think, whether uh, what people think about our work, what people think about our parenting or grandparenting, what people think about the way we look, what our friends think about us. Where do we find that sense of self-worth? In position or in comparison to others? in what others think, or do we find our self-worth in our identity in Christ Jesus? We behave as though uh, we're storing up treasure on earth. Having stuff, the best, or even just enough, is what it's all about. Our holidays, our promotions, our car, what we wear, are the highlight of our lives. Can I honestly say, with Paul, that I consider or even aspire to consider everything a loss, complete garbage, complete rubbish, worth nothing at the end of the day, that I may gain Christ. 
Barry Humphreys. He's a comedian and an actor known for his alter ego, Dame Edna Everidge. Uh, and he entitled, entitled his autobiography this, More Please. And that's because his first two words, he said, were more please. And he goes on to say this in his autobiography. I've always wanted more. I never had enough milk or money or socks or sex or holiday, holidays or first editions or solitude or records or free meals or real friends or guilty pleasures or neckties or applause or unquestioning love or persimmons. I didn't know what those were. I googled them. They're a fruit. Um, and I, he goes on to write, I've always had more than my share of, I've always had more than my share of most of these commodities, but it's always left me with a vague feeling of unfulfillment. Where was the rest? More please. In some ways, Barry Humphreys had stacked up a huge amount of credit, of things that looked like made his life a success, a power, worth, pleasure. But ultimately, he was unfulfilled, and he's still asking, more please? We get that taste, but we're never satisfied. And the Apostle Paul, though, has come to know that Christ is enough. So before God, all he had, all he was, his religiosity, his parentage, his standing in society, his education, the social benefits he'd been born with or had achieved, his power, his knowledge, ultimately he's saying it's worth nothing to me. In, and it's worth nothing to me because in God's eyes, it's worth nothing. Because ultimately, there was nothing that he could do to get into God's good books. Jesus had done everything. Christ is enough. And that's ultimately what the gospel of Jesus is all about, isn't it? Jesus has done it all. Uh, when he died and he rose again, he took our pathetic human strivings, all our efforts to be worth something, all the times that we have made our stuff or our jobs or our relationships or money or people more important than him. He took all that upon himself on the cross. He paid the price once and for all. And so open the way for us so that no matter what our achievements or our background or our successes or our failures in life alike, with him, we can come into that relationship with the living God, free and unhindered. All that stuff out of the way so that the way is open for you and for me to know and breathe in the deep love of Jesus, to know and experience his forgiveness, to be uh, free of all the shackles of the rubbish in our lives in this world, to be guilt-free, to know God. This is great news that we have. This is good news. Christ is enough. What would it mean for us to consider all that we have all that we strive for as a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. To live really as though Christ is enough. Let's just think about that for a moment. Let's take 30 seconds. What would it look like for you and I to really live as though Christ is enough?
the other day, Josh and I uh, were chatting about this, and I said to him, what would it look like for you? And he said, for me, it would look like uh, giving up my drumming for Jesus. It would look like giving up my marriage or my family for Jesus, surrendering everything that I have for him, being willing to do that. It would mean making Jesus center stage of everything. Paul knows that his confidence can only be in Jesus Christ because Christ has done it all. But there's more because he says in verse 10 and following, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's saying, even though uh, Christ has saved me, And I have my resurrection hope secure. There's still so much more to know of Christ Jesus. And there is still so much more to do. Uh, There is a race still to run here on earth. And so he goes on in his letter to encourage the Christians in Philippi with these words in verse 14. Forget what is behind. Forget what has gone before. Forget all the things associated uh, with your old life, all the things that you thought had stacked up credit for you. Forget all that rubbish and press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Uh, Last week, Dave was speaking on a conference, and I was on the conference, and uh, and he reminded us of the moment uh, from the film Chariots of Fire, uh, a a particular scene from Chariots of Fire. Uh, As many of us know, uh, the film is about the rivalry between two athletes, Eric Liddell and Harold Abrahams. Uh, And during the film, uh, we come to one really important race uh, where Harold Abrahams loses to Liddell. And in the scene following the race, Abrahams is sat there in the stands and he is inconsolable. And he just repeats this one phrase uh, time and again. I looked across. I looked across. You see, as he was finishing, uh, nearing the finishing line, he's distracted by Liddell. And he looks across and he loses the race because of it. He took his eyes, if you like, off his own race. And for a split second, he was bothered about the race that Liddell was running. And it cost him the prize. God has put a particular race before the Apostle Paul to run. To be a church planter. To to be somebody who helps spread the gospel of Jesus around the world. To be somebody who encourages uh, leaders around the world. I'm not Paul. You're not Paul. His race is not our race. God has given each of us a race to run. Once we've left what is behind, and if you have joined Jesus on the track, then our job is to keep our eyes fixed on on the race that God has called you and I to run. To not look across, to not get distracted or compare ourselves uh, to other people, but to press on to win the prize for which God has called me and you heavenward. Are there things in your life, are there things in my life 
that are distracting us from running that race that, that Jesus has put before us? Are there things that are stopping us running that race? Things that are getting in the way? The third section of our new strategy is deepening influence, deepening influence. And it's about us as a church uh, looking at the racetrack that God has put us on, looking at our places and looking at the places that we have before us. Uh, We have where we can be a voice into those places, looking at the opportunities that God has put before us and stepping into them to influence and to transform society, using our influence as a church to bring in the kingdom of God. And one of the ways that we're going to hopefully be doing this is by training more leaders and also planting uh, some more congregations and churches as well over the next few years. But deepening influence is also about you and I realizing that God has put us on our own long and sometimes bumpy track for a reason. And so our challenge is to run the race that he has put before you and I, for him and with him, with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. So some questions to consider. What or where is your track? Is it your workplace? Whether it's working at the NHS or in a school, whether it's working in an office or a business or for the council, whether it's working in your home or elsewhere. Where is your track? Who are the other people alongside you as you run that race? How might God be calling you to be a person of influence for him in that place that he has put you in? With those people that you are running alongside. In your workplace, what might it look like for you to influence for Christ? Would it mean being a voice of morality? Or to bring in Christ-like justice? Would it mean uh, pushing for ethical working practices or ethical business deals? What would happen if you could uh, forgive your competitor, the person who undermined you at work, the person who's making your life a misery? How can you forgive them in the way that Christ Jesus has forgiven you? If you're already in a leadership position, How are we leading? How are we using our influence to bring in the kingdom of God? Wherever we find ourselves, how do we speak with a clear voice to power? And how can you and I use our political voices to influence power? How can we as Christians get involved and be a voice uh, for the voiceless? We've already heard about that from Don with Safe Families for Children. How can we uh, get involved by lobbying or writing letters? Uh, Maybe God is nudging some of us here to get involved in the political world in a way that we never have before. How can we put ourselves forward uh, to deepen our influences in our communities, perhaps in the schools that are on our doorsteps or we're involved in? And how about your family or your friendship groups? 
What would our influence amongst those relationships be like if we are running that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not getting distracted? What would it look like for us to deepen influence for Christ in the way that we parent or grandparent, in how we spend our time with people, in how we prioritize? If we look around us today, we know that this world is becoming increasingly secular. And as it becomes increasingly secular, it also is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. I don't always think that's necessarily a bad thing. Because if you look through the pages of Scripture, uh, and if you look over the history of the past 2,000 years, it's apparent that in those tough times, in those tough places, that is when the people of God begin to rely on him like never before. That's when you and I start to fix our eyes on Jesus and push forward in the race that God has called us to run. And it's then that breakthrough often happens. Paul, in this letter, is writing to the Philippian Christians, and he's telling them how he has discovered that everything in his life that he thought was really, really important is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And he's encouraging them that despite the suffering, despite the antagonism that they're facing, despite the hostility uh, that they face every day in their communities and their workplaces to run the race that Christ has called them to. And it's during that time in history that the gospel of Jesus began to spread around the world like wildfire. Christ is enough. Those early Christians realized that that was true, that Christ is enough. And they went all out for Jesus, and they ran the race that God had called them to as whole life surrendered disciples of Christ. I just want to end with a story. I've um, told some of this before, but I think it's profound, and it's a powerful reminder of what God has been speaking to us about through this passage this morning. It's about the founder of the Salvation Army, uh, William Booth. And it happened uh, really near the end of his life. He was about 80 years of age. And uh, a famous American evangelist had come over from the States to uh, chat to him. And he says to him, uh, what is the secret of your success? And he writes about how tears came to William Booth's eyes and started to roll down his cheeks as he said this. I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. And that evangelist went away from that meeting uh, with William Booth, knowing this, that the greatness of a person's power is the measure of their surrender.